Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And there was a lot of introductory jibber-jabber in last week's episode, and so I'm going to keep this week's to a minimum. We're nonetheless continuing with a slightly morbid theme. Last week we were talking Jack the Ripper. This week we're all about London's cemeteries. Thanks very much, by the way, to those who sent in very uh, positive comments about last week's episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, please do. If you haven't subscribed yet, uh, definitely worth thinking about pressing that button. Well, look, I promise to keep it short, and I'm as good as my word. Let's get ourselves over to Hampstead. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before, just a song through from your front door. I am lapping up summer. I'm on the steps of a chapel in Hampstead Cemetery today, and with me is somebody who describes the uh, art of understanding graveyards as being like enjoying scratch cards. Uh, Sheldon Goodman is a cemetery's expert, a Westminster tour guide, and I'm going to be finding out who is here. Hi, Sheldon. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. I, I was uh, a bit disappointed. I thought I was here to meet someone called Sheldon Cooper. Yep, you had to go there, didn't you? Thank you for that. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Quite genuinely, this is the appointment that's in my diary. Yes, Sheldon, yes. Sheldon, I don't even watch that show. No, neither do I, for a good reason. <laughs> uh, we're off on the right foot. Yeah, yeah. As we look to our right, by the way, from these steps, uh, there's a building on the other side of the street looking down the central drive of the cemetery, and that used to be... It used to be a monumental mason, sourcely when people were buried here and uh, people wanted to commemorate their, their beloved and their loved ones. Uh, where would you go to kind of find a suitable memorial for them? Well, they just popped over the road to the masons that was there. Um, I can't remember the name of it exactly, but obviously it's ideally placed considering where the cemetery is. And, you know, in there they would have had brochures, examples of particular headstones and so on. And, you know, they would have made a roaring trade from it. Um, most importantly, you don't want to be carrying something that heavy too far, do you? No. Um, I mean, let's not forget this is before vans and cars and such like, you know, any of these big memorials that you see uh, in London nowadays would have been moved by traditional horse and cart um, and you know good old fashioned hard labour would have you know put them into place and it would have been a formidable undertaking especially if you were rich <laughs> you know um, a formidable undertaking oh, oh that was quite yeah look at that that was quite unexpected but yeah again you know especially if you're rich and you wanted to you know really show off your wealth and how much the person meant to you you chose a big memorial and you know the the, the labour that would have gone into constructing it and putting it into place would have not only reflected the money spent in it but also the status of the person it's you know looking to commemorate and we've picked this one there are lots of places that we could go to explore the subject of london's cemeteries and we'll look at the overview of them as well as looking at who's buried here what made us pick this one in particular well i actually visited this one a couple of weeks back as i run a blog called cemetery club um, and usually me and um, a number of p- uh, people now go around the london cemeteries and just write about various ones i mean it's, it's simply a case of seeing what's what's on a map picking one and then going to um, visit it and seeing what's what so i I, choo- I chose this one a couple of weeks back um and I've, i fell in love with it i thought well, this is a particularly nice one because i think especially if you're unfamiliar with the cemetery scene a cemetery scene in london like it's some sort of nightclub if you if you are aware of cemeteries in london i'm sure m- many people would have heard of highgate or brompton 
um, and others which are also known as the Magnificent Seven, which is a ring of Victorian cemeteries that circle London, which upon their opening would have been in the countryside. That was a historical name that was given to them in the 1980s. When they opened at the time, they weren't known as that. And certainly when they did open, they were just cemeteries. Uh, They revolutionised the way that we treated and buried our dead in London uh, because, uh, as I'll go into later in the podcast, it was a fairly gory business if you happened to die in the early 19th century. But obviously as a result of those seven opening, successive ones opened. And this one, Hampstead Cemetery, opened in 1876 as a result of this kind of reformation in burial. And it's just nice to see the evolution that happened from like the likes of Abney Park and Tower Hamlets to this one, as I said, which opened in the 1870s. So is this yet another, this, this uh, is incredible in this city, is this yet another example of the Victorians thinking big and thinking about the municipal infrastructure of the capital? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, these places were, I mean, obviously there were places where you buried, you know, your auntie Enid or whatever, but there were also places where you came on a Sunday for a nice little gentle walk. Because especially when they were new, these were open parklands. I mean, we're familiar with cemeteries now being full of marble headstones or granite tombs and such like, but actually when in their early days, and certainly in the middle of their life, Lives, they were actually fairly open spaces, and people, you know, would would make a make a concerted effort to come and visit um, these lovely places. And a number of these cemeteries actually employed very well known landscape gardeners to tend to their needs. Essentially, um, for example, the um, the guy who um, did this one was a guy called Joseph Fife Meston. Um, again, a name most people probably wouldn't have ever heard of. But the other work he did was Victorian Bankment Gardens. So, again, you know, they really did put an effort in. I mean, obviously they wanted to make these places as nice as possible, but let's not forget these places operated on profit. They wanted to make money. And how are you going to do that if you've got an utter shambles of a cemetery? You needed to make it nice. You needed to make it pristine. They charged an admission fee? They didn't charge an admission fee, but they certainly charged for burials, um, obviously because they, they were a business, you know. They, they were in the business of making money. So Now, what were the alternatives at this point? If you were uh, making money from putting people in the ground here was it the case that uh, the uh, better to do family would try to get a more uh, attractive position for their recently deceased family member or with the social kudos in where you were buried how did it work it does depend most cemeteries such as this one has a grand drive a grand avenue which leads up to the very pretty chapel up the top there now this would have been the prime space for people to be buried this certainly probably would have been the most expensive plots I mean, you, you can see I mean, there's uh, just one off in the distance. There's a, a tomb there that resembles an Egyptian temple. Obviously, they would have thrown a large amount of money at that, and they wanted to make a statement. They wanted to say this person in life was well-respected, well-to-do, did well. And Egyptian. And, and I don't know if he was Egyptian. <laughs> I can look that up. But obviously, the, the deeper into the, kind of, into the bowels of the cemetery you go, the grandeur does kind of lessen somewhat, obviously, because the plots were cheaper. But also, I think, more so, those were the people who didn't want to show off. They just wanted a simple place to bury their loved one. And, you know, as I'll, I'll take you around um, shortly, you, you'll see that kind of transition. Let me paint a picture here, and it's a beautiful day for picture painting, I, I must say. The sky is gorgeous. It's got that lovely cotton wool effect on it. The sunshine is piercing through, mm. uh, but it also looks very hazy and gentle, like we're in a painting. Yeah. And as you look down the central boulevard of the cemetery here, that effect that you're talking about with the more ostentatious, perhaps, graves with their pinnacles and peaks lining the boulevard kind of gives the impression of um, well if you were at Legoland and you're looking at their monuments of the world section yeah. that, that's what you get and, yeah. and then you look a few rows back and you see much simpler crosses and many more of them per square foot I think yeah yeah, exactly and also um, you know back when this opened there weren't the mature trees that we have now um, so obviously it would have been you would have seen a lot more monuments than you would have done today um, obviously now you've got the, the nice contrast between monument and nature which is nice and obviously that's another thing thing as well that cemeteries in London are becoming known for is that they are literally becoming wildlife habitats now. Um, so, you know, the, the dead are almost sheltering the living in a, in a way, uh, which is a nice little kind of afterthought, I think, of cemetery progression, really. Can we talk about you for a moment? If you, if you, if you, if you like. We'll do it in this order. We'll do you and then all of London. Okay, okay. <laughs> um. Um, who... who uh... Who are you? Sheldon, uh, a wonderful name, by the way, Sheldon. Thank you, thank you. Please Uh, don't mention the show. Um, (laughs) How did you get into doing this? I, uh, that's that's, that's a quote, especially when people see how how young and beautiful I am. Um, I I can see how young you are. Well, how dare you? My interest has always been there. I came into a family where I didn't know my grandfathers. 
so I, I knew both my grandmothers and it was many many times a year we would go to the cemetery to pay our respects to my various uh, grandfathers um, and it was always you know a very not a solemn affair but it was something that was always to be done and I was just fascinated that these like little plots drew people to such an extent and then when my grandparents eventually or well, my grandmothers eventually passed away one by one one in 2001 one in 2010 it was interesting to see the effect that it had on my family how the dynamic changed and that, that kind of spurned my interest in it because and another thing as well, and it's a slightly morbid thought is that you know these women tended these graves knowing full well one day they'd end up there I mean, what, how, what does that do to you? I mean, I, I, mean I, I don't have a plot. I don't know where the hell I'm going to end up. But what does that do to someone, you know? And it, it was that kind of, not, not fixation, but certainly that interest, you know, in, in these almost like personal pilgrimages, going to these places and seeing, you know, eventually many of the people who tend these graves will end up in those very plots themselves that kind of started it all, really. There must be that same kind of memento mori effect for you, though, as you're spending so much of your time contemplating, uh, in, I suspect, a very ordinary way, mortality. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And, and I've kind of got doctors in my mind for some reason who have to deal with the fact of us being living things that pass out of the state of being mm. living and there being various stages of passing out. Do you feel especially in touch and at peace with the fact that you're going to die one day? It's just part of the deal. You know, I've, I've, I've often... You know, people often say, oh, no, but one day I'm going to be dead. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, you're, you're dying for the moment you're born. That's just how it is. And okay, now we tipped over a, a point, I think. We are, we, well, <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. But it's, 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 it's a point nonetheless. I, but, think, yeah. I think it's not true as well, isn't it? Aren't we still uh, growing and uh, improving until somewhere in our teens? Well, well we are. Um, but, but, you know, we are fighting a losing battle, to, to put it very, you know, bluntly. And it will happen one day, so, you know... I'm very, I'm, I'm very, you know, kind of not okay with it. I'm, I want to live forever, you know. I want to regenerate like Doctor Who, ideally, but that's not going to happen. So, it's just part of the deal. So, as you enter a cemetery, and I'm, I'm guessing you've seen a vast majority of them in London already, but as you enter a cemetery, perhaps when you're already familiar with, what are you, uh, what are you looking for first of all? What catches your attention? Well, I'd say the first thing are any kind of big standalone notable monuments, because um, obviously, you know, especially when you first come into the cemetery, they're deliberately placed there, because especially when these places opened, they were one of the unique selling points, you know, put all the kind of the, the richer people towards the entrance, because it makes us look a bit grander and a bit showy. So you're a sucker for bling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I should, probably shouldn't admit that, but I am. And then once you get over that and you think, OK, but, you know, it's all very well having these big showy monuments and mausoleums and such like, let's get a little bit deeper now. And that's when you can venture off the beaten path so to speak, and see what else is here. Well, we've turned more or less at random into a side path off the main boulevard. And what catches your attention here? Well, we've got two monuments here. There's one, I, I mean, again, I don't know who these people are, but on one of them there's actually sheet music. Um, I'm not sure who this person was in life. Perhaps he was, um, let's see his name, Charles Webster Miller, and there's sheet music on it. Now, obviously, music was a big part of his life, and it's reflected on the, frankly, very impressive monument that his family chose to have dedicated to him. Obviously wasn't cheap, and it was obviously put there to, to obviously make a statement about the man himself. And you've picked a particularly interesting one there as well, haven't you? Because the style of ostentation in many of these graves involves pillars and classical references yep. and grandeur whereas these i mean they're enormous these two crosses next to each other his and that of henry george randall but both of them have been designed to look lo-fi so with each of them you've got a rock that's been carefully made to look rugged and unconstructed yep. and then a cross in a similar style very simple but enormous cross yep. on the top so they seem to be saying something about uh, y- yes we're important but we're also humble or yep. Yes, yeah, very much so. And also, you'll, you'll probably see there's a large number of Celtic crosses around here. You'll see them dotted around. And that's because at one time there was a very big Scottish contingent here. Um, and obviously they chose to be commemorated with the, with the Celtic cross to kind of symbolise where they came from. So, uh, Charles Webster Miller's caught your eye. What do you do now? Is this a moment where you would uh, start well, digging? So let's, well, Sorry, well, not, not, li- not, not literally. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, that's, hold your horse. That's, no, uh, no, that no. I'm definitely keeping in whoa, the blimey. Um, no, no, so, so <laughs> wow, wow. Um, so I just read his head. So, so Charles Webster Miller, a Royal Opera Covent Garden. So immediately I'm thinking, oh, hello. I've got, to, I've got to retake that. I can't leave that. In. That's, but, going in an out, that's going in an outtake show if I'm not <laughs> It was a slip of the tongue. Perfectly acceptable. Beautiful. (laughs) 
Is this the moment where you whip out to Wikipedia and start finding out who the fellow was? It is. I mean, I, so I'd go to see, so let's say, Charles Weston Miller, so then I take a couple of steps forward to the, um, to the headstone, and I see Royal Opera, Covent Garden, something opera. Uh, so, oh, and this is where I get even closer now. Uh, let's have a look. I can't make that out. Opera company and principal concertist. So clearly he was a musician. So immediately I'd get on my phone, put him into Google and see what came up. And that's another thing as well, which is remarkable about these things. You, you just wander around thinking, well, these people aren't going to be on Google. Well, yes, they are. A lot of them are. And they've got biographies. And you know, it's, it's rather peculiar to think that, you know, people whose lives never even saw the Internet, were never touched by it, are there waiting to be discovered. I mean, I, my sight reading of music, I'm not even going to attempt it because I'm actually a bass and that's a soprano line. But um, I, would, I would try and sing that at the grave. But I'm not going to because I'll just sound like an idiot. Um, <laughs> Beneath it, it says, All my heart is buried with you. All my thoughts go onward with you. Yep. Evelyn. And that, of course, makes me think about the relationships that are hinted at on the headstones. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also a very telling uh, one about the headstone as well. You'll see there's a very big gap underneath. Now, obviously, I don't know. I would I put good amount of money that he had a wife who was supposed to end up there and then didn't. Now, when you say a gap underneath, I'm, I'm looking at the headstone and I can see that the panel on the front of it there, uh, that's got that text of music etched into it, yeah. uh, stops short of the ground by about six inches, maybe yeah. a little less. Yeah. How do you deduce what you just deduced from that? Well, if you look at the next headstone, you'll see it says Anna Maria, uh, who was the wife of Henry George Randall. Now, obviously, she died before him. Uh, so originally, that would have looked like that. So there would have been a gap where Henry George Randall's uh, epitaph is now. You'll see it's there, and there's nothing. Now, for something so grand, I find it very unusual. I mean, I don't know, I might be wrong. He, he might have just wanted this grave for himself. I don't know. But it's just unusual to find that area blank, in my mind. Well, that raises all sorts of interesting possibilities. It does, it does. Did she move away, which is quite possible if her, if her husband died or if he indeed, if he indeed was married? Uh, where did she go? Uh, she might have moved with the children, she might have decided to kind of have a fresh start elsewhere, that kind of thing. So there's the whiff of uh, intrigue yeah, exactly. right away. exactly. So you just kind of think, OK, I mean, most people you know, wouldn't, you wouldn't, have, wouldn't have thought of that, but I, that's one thing I've picked up from running the blog and visiting all these um, cemeteries and, and such like. Um, you know, there's these kind of little hidden stories going on which you know again just waiting to be discovered let's move on i need to ask a little bit about grave etiquette here because in order to get to that grave we had to step across two others it doesn't look to me as though uh, the one on the left here peter lucas's grave it doesn't look to me as though that's remotely long enough for him to be buried lying down or we just walked across his grave yep um, what are the rules here in your mind? Well, I personally, and I probably sound like a complete nutcase for doing this, whenever I do, obviously to get to some grade you have to do that. I always just say, oh, terribly sorry, excuse me. Just, you know, just, you know, I'm not probably, I probably sound like a, like a blithering idiot really, but it's just my way of saying well, I'm terribly sorry, don't mean to walk on your grave, because I find it disrespectful, but sometimes it can't be helped. So I just, you know, just give a little terribly sorry. We hear um, about those those overcrowding issues, especially in the East End graveyards. Have you any idea of how many people are buried in each grave? Do you get sort of multiple occupancy going on here? You do, yes. I mean, some of these plots, um, especially the, the larger ones, were supposed to be for entire families. Um, I mean, especially in places like Highgate and West Norwood, there were huge vaults which were supposed to accommodate up to 20 people. Because of one reason or another, perhaps migration, uh, the fact that opening up these graves was actually so expensive it was just cheaper to buy another one uh, a lot of them only have like about four or five people in them what do you mean opening up the graves so you've got these graves here um not so let's say let's take uh okay we'll use this one this middle martin as an example okay we're looking at something that's uh, like a post box on a plinth in yeah. size yeah. now that's not obviously the biggest um monument i've ever seen but certainly some of them have been huge whacking great you know uh, marble blocks and so obviously to inter someone into that you'd have to disassemble it uh, to get the coffins in. Now, the problem was is that sometimes the cost of doing that was just so great, the family just thought, let's just get another plot. It's just not worth it. Um, not so much in that case. That, that would be a fairly regular one to do, but that's the kind of you know, thing that, that would have happened. Let's check your subterranean knowledge. The uh, item there that we described, it's tall, and the area of it is about a foot and a half square. And then there's a, a stone border around the, uh, around the edge of the allotment there. And if you took that off, I reckon what you're left with is the footprint of a smallest shed. How would the family be positioned in there? 
Uh, probably one on each side. So I think that's that's two plots which have just been merged into one. Uh, they'd be a coffin, coffin, then probably about, I don't know, four foot or something. Coffin, coffin, another four foot, coffin, coffin. So very similar to today, really. Uh, let's keep moving. So just up here, we've got our first notable grave. Um, and certainly her memory does linger on because she was the darling of not only London, but the UK generally, well, the world even. She was a massive superstar, and that's Marie Lloyd who was one of, the, you know, one of our greatest musical stars. Uh, Jessie Wallace uh, portrayed her in a, uh, in a drama uh, very recently. This lovely kind of, again, Celtic cross, which has just gone a bit wobbly, obviously, because of the ground settlement, but here she is. Now, the interesting thing about Marie... Um, now, I, when I do my tour of Tower Hamlets, I actually speak um, about another musical star uh, by the name of um, Alec Hurley. Now, obviously... In the late uh, 19th century, there were loads and loads of entertainers, well, much as much as there are today, um, who were household names. Now, he actually met Marie Lloyd when they were touring America, and they fell in love. They became lovers. Problem was that she was married, um, so they kind of had to keep it on the down low. Then eventually, uh, her first relationship uh, broke up, and she then ended up kind of having a, a relationship with him. It was a very good uh, match to begin with. But the problem was, is Marie was such a big superstar, it actually started to... Well, her career started to eclipse his own. And I don't think he was ever really particularly happy with that. He became very depressed, and like so many people of the day, he turned to the bottle to console himself with the fact that his wife's superstardom was just... The fact that his wife was successful. Well, you know, it, it was, I, I think, you know, it's, it's when you've got your own career to worry about and you say, obviously he, he wanted to be happy for her, but I don't know, maybe he had self-confidence issues or, or whatever... But anyway, he started to kind of lose confidence a bit. And then she met a 24-year-old jockey by the name of Bernard Dillon. I, I sent another bottle for the husband. Uh, well, you're, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, she then decides to go off with Bernard and leave um, poor old Alec in the lurch. He never got over that. And it's, it really did dent his career. He again just completely lost himself to the bottle. And he died in uh, Jack Straw's Castle in Hampstead. He was tragically young. Um, only in his uh, 40s or 50s, and he ended up being buried, not in Hampstead where he lived, but in Tower Hamlets, where he's buried in his mother's grave. Marie, obviously, um, her superstardom went, you know, it just reached new heights all the time. She extensively toured Europe and America. However, the union between her and Bernard was not a happy one. Um, She did suffer, unfortunately, the hands of domestic violence. Um, There's a story where a policeman was called to their house and he found her cowering under a table while he was just, you know, going about in a rage swinging his fists around and again you know to someone who was who was so bombastic in life it really did dent her her self-confidence and indeed her career and um virginia wolf for example saw her in the kind of dying days of her career and said basically she was all teeth she had a crapless way of saying the word desire but clearly a born showwoman um but just clearly exhausted and she died fairly close to poverty and had a massive funeral where thousands of people literally were all over this local area um, to witness her coffin being lowered. And what, one thing I found yesterday was there's actually footage of her funeral. Really? Which is remarkable. There's a number of websites you can find, the British Pathé, I think this was on the Huntley Archive or something, and there's these six very Edwardian-looking pallbearers with um, her very impressive coffin on their shoulders, and then it's just this local area here where there are literally thousands of people dressed in black um, being lowered into this very spot. Um, but again, it's on my tours that I do, it's just you see how Marie's grave is and you compare it to her husband's, which is kind of lost in a dense forest almost. Um, and it's just kind of, well, you know, for, for a while these two people were so madly in love with each other and obviously life's path took them in different directions. Do you fancy a specialist bonus question? Go on. Whenever I hear somebody described as a musical star, I always wonder what that actually means i have trouble visual in in the same way that uh, if you were to say in the present day that somebody's a tv star it doesn't yeah. really tell you what they did do you yeah. happen to know what she did she was a performer um she obviously she started performing at a very young age uh, she mainly did it to entertain her eight siblings um but she was obviously a, a, nat- a natural showwoman as i said before what did she perform songs comedy acts kind of thing uh, her best known song is the boy i love is up in the gallery uh, that's a song that's usually used in old Victorian films of London, usually. Um, again, I would sing it, but I'm not going to. I'll have to charge you for that. Well, but, very, uh, very defensive. Well, it's a talent. Um, but yeah, she, so she was known for going so, around... hang on, no, before we go any further. So we're getting this stuff for free because what? C- because, because I'm nice. <laughs> 
I'm now beginning to weigh the value of your uh, words here if you're giving it away. But well, I, can, I can sing it. Well, I'll sing it for you. If you, if you yeah, go on, let's have it. Okay. okay. Now, uh, the words, I'm a bit... Because I've just been put on the spot. So, so Marie Lloyd's best-known song was... Uh, the boy I love is up in the gallery. The boy I love is looking down at me. There he is. I've forgotten the words. Da, 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 handkerchief. That sings on a robin. <laughs> that sits on a tree. Now, that's why I didn't do it, you see. And I'm doing it at her graveside. How disrespectful is that? I thought, I'm I, sorry, Marie. I thought that was very impressive. I but, think um, if she was into comedy as well, I think she'd she, have liked she, la 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 handkerchief. Be, she was saying, who is this young idiot here? What is he doing to my song? Um, but anyway, so she um, performed in the music halls, which were go-to destinations, really, for the Victorian society. You know, you went there to forget your troubles. You, you went to forget... Uh, you went there for a good time, but you also, you know, went there just to really enjoy yourself. So, and she was one of many of the stars. I mean, the other, other stars of the day included Dan Lino, Albert Chevalier, George Laban. The, 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 um, the list is endless. We're on the move again. I, I just wanted to draw your attention before we pass away from it to, uh, to this grave here. And it mm-hmm. is uh, a fellow, part of his name's obscured. I think it's Giuseppe. Mm-hmm. And flowers have been recently placed at the headstone. Yeah. This is an unusual grave, though. Most of the graves are grassed over, and you can see uh, only the headstone and anything um, that, that's uh, uh, masonry, uh, or masonry oriented. <laughs> anything that's made out of stone is still there. But this grave uh, gives the impression of having been recently covered over with earth. The pile of earth is uh, nearly a foot tall in, in places. It yep. looks like a recently filled grave. Yes. Few, few stones on there. What's this all about? Well, the, you, you've, you've got it quite right. It is a recently filled grave, obviously. Um, oh, you, and, yet, and yet it says that the people who, in this grave... No, I'm confused. So the headstone there doesn't belong to this grave? I think it, pr- think it probably... Um, I don't know, actually. It's Because um, the two people there were, were died in 26 and 88, respectively. No, no, that's, that's his birth date and that's his death date. So he died in 88. So he died in 88, and then you'll see that there's another... Uh, it's, it's a book memorial. There's another page which is left blank, which I presume is for his wife. Ah, so this this might mean living. Mrs. Uh, Giuseppe yeah, recently well, arrived. No, I, don't, I don't know if this mound because it's it's set back slightly. I'm not sure if it's that for this particular grave. I'm, it's probably because looking at the orientation of it, it probably is. Um, but I presume that his wife has just recently joined him. I, I genuinely mean this. I apologise if our conclusions are incorrect because that might be uh, distressing to the very much alive Mrs. Eusebi and her family. So it could equally be that yes, we're, we're yes, looking at a, a companion grave to the one on the right here, the family Scanlon, or indeed it could be uh, something else altogether. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Again, it's, it's impossible to tell if, you, if it's not kind of you know laid in front of you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's obviously a recent burial, very recent indeed, which just goes to show you that despite how long this cemetery has been open, it is still taking people in it's still a working cemetery um and that's all the more reason to be very reverential to the people who are buried here because you know these are lives that were once loved and cherished and you know people are still choosing to be buried here so oh just a question that has come up because i see over the top of this grave there's a headstone there that seems very much it seems like it's in the wrong place it's that black fellow there that i'm looking at yes and uh, it's at a different angle than some of the other ones and it's sort of tucked half under a bush and it's it looks a little bit adrift yeah and it put me in mind of those churchyards that you see where the gravestones the headstones are up against the perimeter wall mm-hmm. what's going on when you see that well in that instance most of the time it's because the churchyards have been landscaped they're they're too full um and the space is probably better used as like an open space where people can you know especially like in the city churchyards people can just like have lunch so it's easy just to kind of clear the headstones away and just put them around the periphery in that one it looks like um what's known as infill which is when the cemetery reaches the end of its working life i guess they start to use any available space possible which means that sometimes headstones end up in places which don't really seem to fit the general layout and kind of plan of the cemetery um but again it's just you know making use of the space that's there to keep the cemetery doing its original function now in those churchyards does that mean that the correspondence between the headstone and its location has been completely surrendered do they no longer know who is where well, they usually have like uh, like burial records, which would tell you. But I mean, if you were to look at headstone that in most like city churchyards, which have clearly been moved, doesn't mean that they're there. They're probably they've either been exhumed. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And buried in a in, in a big grave elsewhere, or they're still there, but they've just kind of cleared the um, cleared the headstone away. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is in those burial records, I don't remember ever having seen uh, locations within the churchyard described. I guess because the people keeping that ledger will assume that the headstone will do that job for them. Well, yeah, but they also have these big grids, um, usually, uh, which kind of tell you each burial. So let's say that, uh, for example, like in, in the war, um, you know, cemeteries weren't immune to being bombed. Um, I mean, like for example, in Tower Hamlets, that had a couple of direct hits, and local residents remember having their back garden showered with bones because obviously the bombs are going off and just exploding everywhere. But obviously, the cemetery records still have kind of grid plans of where people were, so even though something as catastrophic as that happened, they still have a record who was there and who should have been there. But there's a um, particularly good memorial I just want to show you. It's a, it's a slightly strange one. Well, not strange, but um, for the person who's buried here, because you wouldn't probably expect Hampstead to be the location of uh, the burial place of one of the Prime Ministers of Australia, oh, for example. So this is Andrew Fisher. Now, he was born in Crosshouse in Ayrshire uh, in 1862, and he went over to Australia and became three times their Prime Minister in the early part of the 20th century, on three, on three separate occasions, as I said. Now, he was... Um, he was present at the unveiling of Canberra. There's actually a picture of him where he's standing atop this memorial with uh, another Labour, an Australian Labour politician by the name of King O'Malley. And they're just unveiling the name of the new capital, um, which is a, it's a rather... And he's wearing a really nice coat as well. I, I do have a kind of soft spot for these Victor, Victorian Edwardian coats, and it's like, oh, I wish, wish next sold that. But anyway, um, he was um, he was not only a, um, a, a, the Prime Minister, he did other things as well. He actually set up the Commonwealth Bank in Australia. Uh, that was one of his achievements as well. Uh, he was involved in finance and mining. And again, one of these people who um, just kind of almost turned their hands to anything and just did it almost effortlessly. Um, he actually came to be buried here um, because, well, he retired... He succumbed to the effects of old age. He suffered from dementia towards the end, and he retired to Hampstead uh, three years before he died. So he eventually passed away in 1928, which is why he's here. But I think he he really did want to continue to be involved in the Australian political system. Uh, but I think age, and obviously there was a new breed of politician coming up as well, and they just thought, well, there's not really much point really, which is quite sad. Um, but yeah, this is you know it's a fine monument to him, and obviously very proudly says for eight years leader of the Australian Labour Party um, and he, you know, he held a majority in the Australian Parliament which was unheard of for a Labour politician at the time so again another notable here I'm looking at the dates that he was Prime Minister as well and uh, one of them 1914 to 15 that's not a good time to be a Prime Minister of a country sending all those no. boys away no, no. Uh, and you won't miss his grave either it's one of the larger ones around here I think the only one that's uh, larger that I can see over there and I think this goes beyond being merely a, a grave for one person is a wall and gate topped by an angel with wings unfurled yep. uh, the name of Bianchi is visible yeah, now this is one of the finest monuments that you will ever see in London. Um, it was actually carved by a undertaker, undertaker's by a stonemason by the name of Farley, who were uh, in Kensal Green. Now this is the grave of an opera singer, who I believe died in childbirth. I might be wrong on that one, but I think she died in childbirth. And her husband was so distraught at her passing that he erected this 
fantastic monument to her. Now, the actual angel you see there is actually her in angel form. Now, originally, it looked a lot more impressive. It did have some very ornate uh, metalwork. It had a nice gate here and it had a nice backdrop. Sadly, it was the victim of uh, scrap metal thieves in 2011, which is kind of... You're kidding. No, this is quite common. This is quite common in cemeteries. This cemetery, like many others, has suffered at the hands of scrap metal thieves. There's actually, on the main stretch there, there's... um, a monument to a cigar merchant. He was also a poet, and he had this really ornate vase which had like a, a bronze snake entwined around it. That went. Um, I think they found it in an auction or something, and they found it. They put it in East Finchley Cemetery for safekeeping, and then it got stolen again, and they've never been able to locate it. You'd have thought um, a cigar merchant would be cremated. Well, <laughs> quite. 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 I don't know what to say to that. Um... <laughs> I just wanted to say as well, because the listener couldn't guess that as you stand in front of this monument, the slope of the hill stretching away, and I didn't realise quite how high up we are, uh, as you look beyond the reliefs on the wall here, which, by the way, depict what I take to be the husband and wife sitting on a a bench. I think she's got a child in her arms. (sighs) And you look beyond that wall and you can see the bowl of the capital behind it with the trees in the near ground and again that's a very restful place that would have been deliberate they would have i mean obviously back in the day when it opened those trees wouldn't have been quite as big and that would have been the view that would have been deliberate they they like to put cemeteries on hills simply because of the views it gave you know if people came here for sunday walks and they saw that it'd be beautiful uh, to the right well i mean i can only say this is in complete contrast is a grave and I'm not casting aspersions at all. It would be easy to, actually. At the end of the grave, which is in black and has pictures of a taxi cab, amongst other images, on the headstone, is a car licence plate, which seems to have the initials of the person who's buried there. An entirely different manner of remembering someone. It is, but it also harkens back to the old Victorian valleys. For example, the Victorians love symbology. I mean, you'll see on many headstones, there's the Ouroboros Circle, which is the snake eating its tail, the clasped hand symbolising we'll meet again. His um, headstone is no different, except it just obviously has his passions on it. There's uh, someone fly fishing and a black cab. I, pres- I presume it was a cabbie, I don't know. Um, but again, it's obviously people choosing to remember his interests, probably a little bit better than, let's say, a conventional headstone would, which is just a collection of words at the end of it. There, you've actually kind of got a taste of his passions. Yeah, this is a much more uh, personal yes. grave than uh, many of the others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, let's, let's press on. Sure. Oh, just over there, there's Alan Corren. People are probably familiar with his son and daughter, Giles and Victoria. And he was a Cricklewood resident. He was indeed, he was indeed. And he was, um, he's, he's a fairly recent uh, burial here um, in a very, very nice headstone. And it says, tomorrow to Freshwoods and Crickles new, which is nice, which is a nice little touch, I think. But yeah, so just, you know, just walking down. This is where the cemetery kind of, the grandeur lessens, but and this is, I think, where it becomes a little bit more real. This is where... Most people would end up, shall we say. The, the headstones are notably smaller. Well, and, and some of the ones we're passing at the moment are uh, really wrecked. The yeah. grave here of Robert Edward Douse, who died in 1946. Uh, yeah. I'd say this is about the size of a, a large double bed, a queen bed, and the tiles across the top of it. If you tried to walk across that, if that was a bit of pavement, you'd break your ankle. Yeah. But again, he died in 1946. When was the last time anyone came to kind of give any kind of upkeep to this grave? Decades ago, probably, by the looks of it. And that's the kind of, you know, what will happen to many of the, the graves here. I mean, some are, some are impeccably kept. Some are, like poor Robert Edward Douse, just falling apart. Uh, that seems particularly poignant when you read the inscription there. He was a devoted husband, father and friend. Yep. And you have to wonder... Well, what happened to them? Because, I mean, they say people remain in living memory for about 70 years after their death, and then people just, you know, pass into the ages of time, which, you know... Men, just many, become a name. Just be, Exactly, you know, and that's, that's the point why I run the blog and why I do tours. I want to reinstate some of these people, you know, because some of their achievements, um, you know, they don't need to be celebrities, they don't even need to be famous. Some of them, you know, did some amazing things, and we shouldn't forget that. Well, on that subject of memory, and of course we're in a garden of memories, that's what the... Yeah purpose of this is in many ways yeah. i wanted to ask you and we're coming up for a break so it might be a bigger question than we could deal this side of it but uh, very often when you're in a cathedral or a church you'll see those flagstone uh, graves mm. and you know that the people are buried under there but countless generations of feet have eroded the lettering yeah. and 
I often feel like, uh, you, you know those ones where it's just about legible if you get, catch it at the right angle. Yeah. And I often think, well, okay, so this is the last moment, the very last moment of that person being sort of publicly remembered, isn't it? Yes, but it this, is. this is the point of their final disappearance. Exactly. The, the, the sum of all their achievements is just laid there. And, you know, as you say, you know, if you catch it in the right light, you can just about make out some of it, which is a great shame. But, you know... You know, let, let's hope you know in, in those instances you know that that's acknowledged and perhaps their graves are refurbished or you know re-etched to kind of remember them. So. Clearly, it's not always going to happen, though, as we've no, just seen. No, it's not. I'm not seeing an ideal world. It would, but obviously, we're living in a world of the living. That sounds like a silly thing to say, but it's and obviously, the needs of the living versus the needs of the dead. It's cemetery space is running out. What to do? Well, that's a good question, and we're, we're going to take an overview of the cemetery scene as well. I gather there are politics aplenty, even amongst yes, <laughs> yes. What, what you think would be a fairly calm and orderly uh, arrangement of uh, institutions around the city. But we'll be back after this word from our sponsor. We have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. The Sound of London. Londonist Out Loud with N. Quentin Wolfe. Listen free every week on your favourite podcast platform. Subscribe via iTunes and get great extra content at Londonist.com. Tweet the show at Londonist Sound and see pictures of all our guests on the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. With me is Sheldon Goodman. He's a Westminster guide and we're looking for alternative names for you if you should ever tire of Sheldon. How do you fancy stebbing? Yeah, why not? Why not? There's worse things to be called. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Um... <laughs> There, there are a number of names you could that shells, if if if, if it so desires. Um, Shelley, that's a that's a popular one in the family. This is uh, a sad sight down here. Yeah, a, a lot of uh, a lot of forgotten graves, I think. Yes. Um, again, this is fairly. It is sadly fairly typical. Um, you know, we've, everyone's got lives to lead, and you know, perhaps people can't visit graves as much as they'd like to. Um, it's interesting to note that there's a grave over there which is covered in nasturtiums, which is kind of like a, like a lily pad plant with these lovely orange flowers. That's actually edible. You can eat them. Not, not advising you do, but you can use them in salads. That's a nice little, little factoid for you. So the, <laughs> the, the London Cemetery scene. Yeah. You mentioned the Magnificent Seven. Yes. What else have we got going on? Where else are people buried? Well, as I said, there's those Magnificent Seven, but then there's also kind of sets of other cemeteries which opened afterwards, this being one of them. Uh, another example is Ladywell and Brockley. And then obviously, fast forwarding a couple of years, there's places like Chiswick New Cemetery. There's one in Manor Park in North East London. So, I mean, cemeteries are opening not all the time, but it's continual. And obviously, with every one that opens, it reflects the burial practices of the day. You go to the newer ones, let's let's say like Manor Park, and you'll have the graves which are covered in like little windmills and like wooden fencing and little trinkets to kind of commemorate the person who whose life is is remembered there, which is obviously in contrast to these whacking great mausoleums you'll find in the grand old Victorian cemeteries, which you know um, again remember them in, in just in a very slightly different, if not arguably more pompous way, really. Well, I thought there was a uh, I thought that the housing crisis for the living was reflected in a similar space crisis for the dead. Absolutely. I mean, if you go to places like Tower Hamlets, which has no space for its dead, it's had to rely on other boroughs and other places to find spaces for its dead to be interred. And this obviously leads to the important question is that, you know, burial space is running out what to do about it and it's a it's a problem that isn't actually as new as people think because this is exactly why these cemeteries opened in the first place i mean just to go back to the early 19th century as i, as I mentioned before kind of in, in the first half if you were to pass away in the early 19th century your kind of options were limited as to if you wanted a, a dignified respective burial you know there are reports that the, like the old churchyards which had served the local parishes for hundreds if not thousands of years were so overcharged with dead there were bones sticking out the ground there were vermin gnawing on the limbs and in some cases some of them actually glowed blue at night 
because they were so packed with decomposing bodies that the gases would illuminate the churchyard at night. That's the kind of situation we were faced with, which is exactly why these places actually opened in the 1830s, 1840s and started a completely different way of remembering. As we pass through what is a much more shady area of the graveyard, you get the clear sense of a lot of these old uh, graves falling into ruin. And there's something terribly romantic here about the ivy around the feet of the angel and uh, winding its way around the crucifixes. Do you, do you enjoy cemeteries? I do enjoy. I think they're really, they're really quite well, peaceful places, you know, especially in, in, in the busy humble tumble world of modern life it's just nice i mean look we're you know we're in a fairly we're not a busy part of london but can you hear really much traffic or much noise it's almost silent apart from the bird song it's just it's a nice kind of antidote i think to the lives that we lead nowadays really who else do you find frequenting cemeteries um it's it's, it's, a, it's a whole kind of spectrum of people you know you've got dog walkers you've got mums with kids you know just wanting a safe place to you know just walk with their children and so on and you know obviously you've got you've got mourners who are you know remembering the dead i've picked up on a number of people in previous connections who've used them as places to sleep rough yes yes um again it, it, they're sheltered they're um they're off the beaten track so you know yeah they, you know they're, they're i suppose yeah, i wouldn't say ideal for it but you know they're certainly a place where people choose to kind of take shelter so, um, b- because it would be remiss of us not to plug your tours a little bit, what, what are you up to in terms of tours? Which places do you haunt? Well, no, I can't, um, again, I've done it. <laughs> okay, you see, it's very easy to just go, just fall into these things. I So, I, I do a number of them, but I do tours for Brompton Cemetery, Tower Hamlet Cemetery, and I've done Abney Park in the past as well. Um, and they're, all, they're, they're very different cemeteries. I mean, obviously, they're op- all open at the same time. But they, you know, Abney Park were dissenters where the alternative, well, alternative Christians, that's a bad way of putting it, but that's where they chose to be buried. Tower Hamlets, obviously, on the social scale of things, that's where many of the East End poor chose to be buried. And then Brompton, where all the kind of, you know, well, the great and the good were buried, um, really. I mean, just to stop briefly, that um, monument there, that is the, one of the Grand Dukes of Russia. He was uh, Nicholas II's great uncle who lived over here in exile because I think a result of a morgantic marriage, which is where, um, let's say, a member of the high social class marries below or not equal to his station. Um, and he lived over here for a number of time. And um, I remember George V... Was it George V? Yeah, it was probably George V who said... Um, he, he really wanted a title when he lived over here. So he basically wrote to George V asking for a title, and George V said to Nicholas II, he went, oh, that old bore has messaged me asking for a title again, which is quite sad, really, when you think he's like an older member of, of his extended family. Um, but again, just little, little tales like that I like to like to share. Did he get his title? No, no, because he wasn't, he was, he wasn't, um, he wasn't an, an English dignitary, he was Russian, so there was nothing he could have done. Um, I, think he's, I think somehow it, it did happen, I can't remember exactly. But um, Well, I'm English, I might be in with a shout. You might be, you know the right people. I never thought of writing. You should, worth a try, isn't right, it? Um, no, right. Yeah. <laughs> Some interesting ones down here. We're just coming up for the chapel that was at the end of the boulevard when we started yeah. uh, the tour, and now it's practically upon us. And to our left, we've got some of those Egyptian monoliths yeah. that we were talking about. There's a couple of interesting angels hewn out of the rock here, yeah. and a fallen. Uh, I've not seen one like this before, actually. Is it intended to be this way? A no. fallen Celtic cross? No, it's simply it's just snapped off. Um, so they've just laid it. On top. Actually, I think that, look, that looks quite nice, actually. But obviously, at some stage, it's, it's just kind of weathered or broken. And obviously, they don't want to remove it from the grave. They've just laid it on top. Now, talk to me about this thing at the end here, which is uh, church-like in appearance. It's got a, a couple of small buildings, which are very much in the, um, the Gothic arch style of a traditional English church. There's what appear to be stained glass windows, and if they're not, they merely need the colouring to become them. Yeah. And in the centre is a tower, almost certainly a bell tower, yeah. and through the centre, another arch that you could uh, take a, a carriage and four through. Mm-hmm. So this is where, um, obviously from where we started the podcast, we're just at the other end of the main drive now. This is where all the coffins would have come, or all the funeral processions would have come, to go into one of the two chapels. So that's, I'm not sure which one's which, but that's, one of them is the Dissenters Chapel, and the other is the Anglican Chapel. So the hearse would 
just stop just under that arch. The coffin would be unloaded, taken into the chapels for its service if it hadn't had it done elsewhere. Service would be concluded and then they would come back out and then carry the coffin to its eventual destination. So, and this is a particularly fine example. Again, it's um, Gothic Revival, um, which again is a statement of architecture at the time because when many of the cemeteries were originally built in the 1840s, 1830s, 1840s, there was a very big argument between classical architecture and Gothic architecture, which one should be the dominant style. Um, and then like a little subsidiary of that was Egyptian architecture. By the time this place came around, the Egyptian thing was kind of, you know, considered old hat, really. They didn't bother with it. Um, and again, that, that argument between... Um, gothic and classical architecture raged on and here they've obviously plumped for a, a gothic revival kind of style um, which is incredibly impressive when you look at it and it seems to echo a lot of places that I, I feel like I know as well it feels like it, in exactly the same way that you get that particular art deco look on a lot of the tube stations yes, yes absolutely, absolutely. It seems again, to be this, the trademark style and again this, this was supposed to reaffirm the place this is where you should bury your, your loved one you know? This, you know they've thrown a lot of money at this because they want to make a statement you know this is a nice place to be buried and that's reflected in the, in the, in the vast range of people who ended up being buried here for example uh, Joseph Lister the pioneer of antiseptic surgery he chose to be buried here um without him most of our modern medicine wouldn't be quite as well not not saying pain-free but certainly without his his work building on the work of louis pasteur um and you know making surgical implements sterile before let's say amputations or um, uh, operations or what have you um, we wouldn't enjoy the healthcare that we do today, really. And it's remarkable as well, since we're surrounded by uh, reminders that you don't go on forever. It always strikes me as remarkable that up until uh, there or thereabouts in history, you could very easily perish from cutting yourself on something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm just going back to, to Lister for a moment. You know, it was almost, uh, and this was actually shown in an episode of Horrible Histories, which was quite interesting. Certainly, back in the in the mid uh, 19th century, if you succumbed to any kind of ailment let's say you got you got you know, I don't know, gangrene or something and amputation was the only kind of way to deal with with the infection you know many of the surgeons aprons were bloodstained because that actually wore them it was almost like a badge of honor you know i mean the, the, the very thought of that today i mean obviously it's you know that's not very sterile it's not very clean and the last thing you want to see if you're going to have such a procedure performed on you but that was just you know the standard of the time and you know as many people died from the resulting surgeries than they would have done from the original disease and he he made kind of like a an antiseptic spray from um creosote essentially which was used to obviously paint uh, fence posts and such like he kind of uh, tweaked it a bit probably slightly diluted it sprayed all his utensils and the wounds with it um he was doing i think someone broke their leg and he obviously put the spray on on the wound and you know did his did whatever he needed to do and you know he checked the uh, wound a couple of days later and it was healing there was no sign of infection and six weeks later the bone if it had broken was completely mended and that was a landmark revolution and this is the same man who kind of did surgery on edward the seventh you know, again, I think he had a, some, some sort of a pet appendix um, issue. And Edward VII very publicly said to Joseph Lister, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. You know, and he's, and he's buried here. Creosote. Creosote. Well, no one's ever had a sick shed. No, no, exactly. I mean, we've obviously moved on a bit since the, uh, the, since the rudimental kind of, um, you know, processes back then that formulated many of the pioneering uh, medical procedures we have today. Um, but, yeah, it's just remarkable to think... You know, something like, you know, painting a shed would have influenced our, our medicine. Well, I'm interested by that one. I think that's going to be less interesting than I thought. I thought we had a CND sign on one of the graves here. <laughs> no, what is that, Greek Orthodox? Uh, duh, 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 duh. I, I presume it's Catholic. It's the... Um... I don't, I don't recognise that symbol at all. It's, a, it's like a cartwheel with six spokes and the top one is a P. Yeah, it's like a quarter with a with a P with a long stem in it. Listener, I'm sure there's a very good chance that you'll know exactly what that is, yeah, but it's, yeah. uh, I'm all at sea. Well, this is this is the uh, the dissenters' part. Many of the cemeteries opened with specific regions. Um, most of them were largely Anglican, but for other faiths such as uh, Catholicism, Baptists, and so on, they had their own little section. And we're in that part now, which is which is why the iconography is slightly different. For example, you have the um, one of the Catholic symbols of the of the S there on the on the Celtic cross. That's a Catholic symbol there that one we've just seen there and so on can we look that up i feel bad not investigating further absolutely let's have a look uh, da, 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 let's have a look 
We can talk. We can talk while I'm looking it up. Yes, we can. okay. You can multitask. I can't, I can't well, allegedly. We're in the home straight, really, of the show. So while you're looking that up, tell us about how people can. Oh, you've got the image there. I've already. got the image. How it's did you do it's that? actually come up. Uh, what did you type in to get it up that Catholic quickly? Catholic symbols. Oh, it is a Catholic. Okay. Uh, the Greek letters Chi and Rho. I'm not. Sure, I'm sorry if the pronunciation of that is wrong. Superimposed on one another. Rendered in the form of a cross, the symbol is used to indicate Christ, since the letters are the first two letters of the word Christ in Greek. There we go, education. Well, speaking of education, Sheldon-led education, uh, how can people find you and get on one of your tours, and where might you take them? Well, um, they could find me at the Cemetery Club, which is www.cemeteryclub.co.uk. We do blog posts every Monday, and I run a number of tours around... Brompton, Abney Park and Tower Hamlet cemeteries. Um, I've got a tour coming up shortly on Sunday, but I'm also doing a Halloween tour around Tower Hamlets, which will be uh, obviously very fitting for the Halloween theme. Now we had, I've got to raise this with you because we had a show very recently in which the juxtaposition of the gruesomeness and the human suffering of the Jack the Ripper case Mm. I found to be an uncomfortable, very uncomfortable fit with the almost cartoonish Hollywood version of what Jack the Ripper Mm. was. And I'm I'm conscious that I can't let what you said pass without uh, kind of challenging it in the same way, I suppose. Mm. The idea of Halloweenishness in a graveyard seems certainly irreverent. How, how do you fit those two things together? I think as long as you're respectful, and it's not, as you say, to cartoonise um, any kind of you know suffering. These are people who have lived and suffered and obviously died. And I think it's important to remember, you know, speak about how people... If they were there with you, how would you speak about them? Um, I mean, you touched upon the, the Jack the Ripper thing, which is a... Which is an interesting way to talk about because, you know, as, as I mentioned to you before, this is it's basically glamorising the murder of women. You know, these are people who were murdered very brutally and it's almost been, as you say, cartoonised, which is something I, I personally don't agree with. If there's one thing I want to, want to kind of make a very strenuous point on is that these are lives which are to be respected and they do have stories to tell which everyone should hear. As you say, these were real people and real people have, some of them, yeah. senses of humour. Uh, we saw it a little bit with Alan Corrin there. I think we possibly saw it with the cabbie's grave. Yeah. Do you see a lot of funny stuff in graveyards? Yes, there is. I mean, especially a number of the epitaphs that people choose to have on their headstones are quite... I mean, it's, it's nice, to, when you read a headstone, you know, you see, oh, here lies Joe Bloggs died. 1956 and that's all they say it's the ones who choose to have a bit of humour on them which is you know it makes you chuckle there's one there's an, there's an actor in here I can't remember the epitaph exactly but it's it's all in rhyming couplets and it's about his achievements and it's going on about saying oh you know when the um, when the reader stands here wondering who I was will they think of my achievements or will they just go who you know things like that you know and, and his name was I can't remember that's the irony of it you see I've, I've read it this morning completely pop but I remember the epitaph so I know of him but I should remember that's terrible isn't it oh, dear. well I, th- I think he called it then didn't he he did call it he, he obviously he, he got it he got it on he got the nail on the head didn't he so good play good, good on him good on him we need more people like that. Have, have a bit of humour on it why not you know we're only here once you know well, what better way to finish our interview here? People wanting to look you up on... I know you're a keen Twitter. Yes, yes, I'm on Sheldon K. Goodman, all one word, on Twitter. Um, and obviously I also tweet from Cemetery Club as well. So that's on, on the Twitter sphere as well. Well, thanks for taking the time. We're in the very depths of Hampstead Cemetery now. It's, it only remains for us to try and pick our way out. But for this week, Sheldon Goodman, thanks very much. Thank you very much. My heart aches for some far that's all for this week my thanks for this week to Sheldon Goodman thanks to to Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music was by songs from the Howling Sea I'm in Quentin Wolf.
front door. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.